All right, well, let's open with a word of prayer and let's dig into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And we thank you for everyone who's here in person. We thank you for those that are watching us via live stream. Lord, may you minister to every heart. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray and all God's people said. So by a way of reminder, so 2 Chronicles was written to the children of Israel who are coming back to Israel and back to Jerusalem after being in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. So this letter was written almost like a a history lesson because those who had been in Babylon for 70 years, many of them had never lived in Jerusalem. Most of them more than likely. So as they were coming back to Israel, coming back to Jerusalem, they're being given this history lesson of why it's so significant, why Jerusalem is so significant, why Israel is so significant, why the temple was so significant. And so it was a history lesson for them, and certainly a history lesson for us some, you know, several thousand years later. And so the last First Chronicles really focused on the life of King David, and 2 Samuel focused on the life of King Solomon. And one of the things we saw at the end of 1 Chronicles is that David had a real burden and a heart to build a temple for the Lord because he was living in a palace and God's home was still in a tent. Matter of fact, the ark was still in Gibeon, some many seven miles or so away from Jerusalem. And so they didn't even have the temple with all the articles in it, with all the furnishings in it. And so he had a burden to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord told him he would not let him build the temple because he was a man of war. So it wasn't because David did anything wrong, but because he was a man of war and, he th- and God taught him that he needed to be a place of peace. And so that Solomon was going to be the one to build the temple. And so David, in preparation for that, instead of didn't take his ball and go home and wasn't upset and mad that he didn't get to do what he wanted to do for the Lord, instead he said, well, I will do what I'm called to do, and I'm going to do everything I can to prepare everything for my son to build the temple. So he gathered most of the, of, of the material that was needed, all the gold and silver, much of the wood. Uh, Solomon had to do some of it. He also gathered together some of the craftsmen. He was the one that got the, the plans for it from God, from heaven. And he had it all laid out. The blueprints were ready. Everything was ready. And then in his parting words to his son, we see at the end of First Chronicles that it doesn't talk to him about how to be a good king or how to be a good warrior or how to defeat his enemies or, or, or you know, anything else. What he really focuses on is, son, your main focus is going to be to build the temple. This is what you need to be focused on. You need to focus on, on making God the priority and the passion of the children of Israel yet again. See, the temple was the place where God's presence would dwell. We will see that in tonight's text. And so he wanted to have that all in preparation, and so David dies. And now Solomon's the king, and keep in mind, he's probably a teenager. And it would have been very easy for Solomon to just disregard what his dad had taught him. And we saw in the first five chapters that Solomon didn't do that. Solomon instead was faithful to what his dad had taught him. He was faithful to uh, step forward and do everything he could to prepare for the temple. And we saw in the last couple of chapters, the temple has now been fully built, So the temple is in place. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago in chapter five, all the furnishings were put into place, including the Ark of the Covenant. 
We've talked about this repeatedly, but just really quickly, all the articles in the temple point to Jesus. We know that the the bronze altar is a picture of the cross. It's got four places where they spread the blood of the sacrifice. The bronze laver, a picture of baptism, as they would go and remove the the blood-stained hands of the priest would be cleansed in the laver. Then they would go into the holy place, and on the left-hand side, they had the golden lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. Then they had the the, uh, table of showbread, and Jesus is the bread of life. Then they had the altar of incense that was just outside the curtain that went into the holy of holies. And that incense was burnt 24 hours a day, and it's a picture of Jesus who was seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. And then you go into the holy of holies, and the only time they could go in was on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur, and only the high priest could enter in, and he would bring the blood of the lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a box and not a boat, right? It's a box, the Ark, and it had inside it, it had three things that all pointed to Jesus. Again, the rod of Aaron, he's the great high priest, the jar of manna, he's the bread of life, and also had the Ten Commandments because he is the word and the fulfillment of the law. And the mercy seat had to cover the law because the law shows that we're sinners and only by God's mercy can we be forgiven. Amen? We're only covered by his mercy. And then you have the angels on each end, the cherubim, with their wings touching in the middle. So when they would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, it was a picture of what they saw on Resurrection Sunday when they came running into the tomb. And what did they see? An angel at the head an angel at the foot, the blood-stained clothes of our Savior in the middle. Guys, the Bible rocks. Every page of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Amen? Every single page. So we come tonight that the temple has been rebuilt, and all the furnishings are back in place. And this is a retelling of this story to the, Babylon, the people in Babylonian captivity as they're coming back to Israel to see its significance. And so if you've got your outline, grab it. I tell the message, a life dedicated to the Lord. And we're going to see in tonight's text that now that the temple has been built and everything is in place, Solomon is going to rejoice. Solomon is going to dedicate the temple. Solomon is going to pray and cry out to the Lord. And he's going to stand before his people as an example of how we approach the Lord. And in the things that he does in tonight's text, we'll see some things that we can do to live a life that's truly dedicated to the Lord as he is dedicating the temple and dedicating God's people to yet serve God again. So I tell the message, life dedicated to the Lord, walking in intimate fellowship with Almighty God, lessons learned from Solomon's prayer of dedication. First of all, we're going to see that as believers, we need to remain in God's presence. Now, what I mean by that is we all know that when we were born again, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we all also know that there are times when we are walking in intimate fellowship with God, and there are times when we get distracted. We make other things a priority and a passion in our life. And even though the Holy Spirit's within us, it's almost like we don't really commune with him. We're not really walking in that intimate fellowship. So the first thing we'll see to living a dedicated life with the Lord is to walk in intimate fellowship with God. We'll talk about this, but do you know, and we'll see this in tonight's text, when when they pray in the Old Testament, we'll see this tonight, they would lift up their heads and hold out their hands like this, because they were looking to the heavens to God when they prayed. And certainly we can pray that way, and I do pray that way sometimes. We also see that they, we'll see in tonight's text, they prayed from their knees, got on his knees to pray. 
And we can pray that way as well. And I think that there are times when my prayer is most focused is either, when I'm either on my knees. And so here's what I do a lot of times is I lay on my face, on the carpet in my bedroom. When something's really desperate, I find myself in that position, crying out to God. And we can, we can pray driving in our car. You know, and we can pray anywhere and any time. We can have intimate fellowship. But we as believers, most of the time when we pray, if we say, let's pray, what do most people do? What do they do? Close their eyes and what else? They bow their heads. Isn't that what we mainly do? We close our eyes and bow our heads. And some of the commentators said, and in some ways that's appropriate because we know that God's presence is within us. And as we're bowing our heads, we're recognizing that God dwells within us. He's not just a faraway distant God up in the heavens. But we're going to see that he would hold out his hands and pray to the Lord and remain in God's presence. We want to walk in intimate fellowship with him. Number two, give God all the glory. We're going to see tonight that though Solomon was used mightily, David was used mightily in preparation, we know thousands of people were used as either craftsmen or people bringing materials or all those people that worked on the temple, but none of them get the glory. God gets all the glory because even though we may be tools in the hands of the master, we're only of any use because God is using us for his glory. Amen? And if any good happens, it's not because of us. In a lot of ways, it's in spite of us. We get to be tools in the hands of the master. And when we're done, we should never take the praise. Because if anything good happened, it's because of him. Number three, humbly coming before the Lord in prayer. We're going to see how we should approach the Lord in prayer. This is, I have to confess to you, this is something that really just fries your pastor sometimes. I have to confess and I have to ask God to forgive me because I sometimes just see this happen and it makes my blood boil. The way that people approach God and make demands of him, it makes my head want to explode. And God, we command that you, we testify, we tell you, and you, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't come demanding, we don't come proclaiming, we don't come screaming, we don't come yelling at God. Can, are you kidding me? We come humbly before the creator of the universe. Amen? We should approach him with awe and reverence, not arrogance. We don't speak anything into existence. That is nonsense. Amen? We come humbly before the Lord. Lord, oh Lord, we, we, Lord help. Amen? Lord, we come before you. We seek your face. And we don't scream at God. We don't yell at God. We come humbly before the throne of grace in prayer. Number four, God hears our prayer. Here's the prayers of those that seek him. God loves it when we pray. The Bible says, you shall make my father's house a house of, okay? Pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. So we as believers have this privilege that that veil's been torn. Imagine what the Old Testament saints must think of us when they did not have access to the Holy of Holies. They never got to go in. Do you know that 99.9% .9 of the priests never got to go in? It was only one priest, one day a year. And can you imagine if they knew that everyone could enter into God's presence anywhere and anytime? And that's us. And we have that availability. We have that opportunity to enter into God's presence. And it's amazing. I have to confess in my own life, I should pray more. Does anybody feel the same way that I do? I pray daily. I pray many times a day. But I know that I could pray a lot more than I do. And prayer, again, prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes my heart. And I find when I pray more, I become more like him. I, I walk in more intimate fellowship with him. And I, I'm more in tune with his heart and his will. 
And so point number three there, four there, God hears the prayers of those that seek him. God's not hiding. If we come humbly before him, he'll hear our prayers. God will judge between right and wrong. We're going to see that there's a point of righteous judgment in tonight's text. And, and he actually prays, you know, God, you judge between right and wrong. Lord, we need your help to know between right and wrong. Do we live in a world today that's struggling with right and wrong? They can't even figure out the difference between a boy and a girl. Boy, they're really struggling with right and wrong. Amen? And we live in a time when people are so desperate and they just don't get it. And the world is such a mess. And you know how we can get back to right and wrong? Get our eyes back on the Lord. Amen? And you know what? He will judge between right and wrong. And there's a day coming when righteous judgment will come. God will also forgive a humble and a confessing heart. No matter no matter what we've done, no matter how far away from God we may be, no matter, you know, I did prison ministry for, I don't know, over 10 years total, and between Lancaster and different places and out in Camarillo, and doing prison ministry, you meet these guys who just think they're beyond forgiving. Pastor, you don't understand what I've done, bro. You don't understand. My whole life, I've stole from everybody. I've lied to everybody. I've harmed people. I've ripped people off. I've, I'm just the most horrible human being on this planet. God couldn't possibly forgive me. I've been in, in drug and alcohol meetings because I had kids that struggled with drugs and alcohol, and, and I would be in meetings where you'd meet these young people, and they'd say, yeah, but I've done so many drugs, and done so, I've done so much harm to my family, and I've done so many horrible things, God couldn't possibly forgive me. I remember one time a young man just said, I'm a piece of garbage, and I deserve to be thrown into a pit. And, and there's no hope. And then, of course, the, the counselors have no answers. And they tell me not to talk about Jesus. And I'm talking about Jesus anyway. Because, guys, the answer is Jesus. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? And there's a blessing in knowing that when you come, when you, when you come in humility with a confessing heart, God is faithful and just to forgive us. That's how we have a dedicated life to the Lord. Number seven, since consequences drive us to repentance. Aren't you glad that sin has consequences? Amen? I didn't hear one amen in the whole room. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And since consequences are no fun when you're going through them, but without the consequences, you might continue in it forever. Amen? So since consequences are a good thing that can drive us to repentance. And we're going to see that in tonight's text that as he is dedicating the, this building to the Lord, as he's crying out in prayer to the Lord, he's talking about, Lord, use this to draw people back into yourself. Use the consequences of their choices to, to bring them back into yourself. And God can do that. The way the transgressor is hard. Number eight, no one who truly seeks the Lord will, will be turned away. Nobody who truly seeks the Lord will not find him. Nobody who's truly open to the Lord will not come to know him. And nobody who really reaches out to him will he turn away. And you know what? We need to be an example of that. As a church, one of the things, I'm talking about the church in general, right? In the United States or in the world. One of the things that when you ask people, when they find out I'm a pastor, one of the first things people will say to me, you know, I have a full-time job. And they'll go, oh, you're a pastor. Okay, so you're probably like a Trumpster who's like really this and that, and you don't like, you hate gay people, and you hate this, and you hate that, and they hate that. And there's this mentality about Christians that we're, 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 we're all about politics, and we don't care about people. And guys, 
part of that. We, own, we, own, we need to own that. Can I get an amen to that? We need to own some of that. We need to be the most loving, kind, and gracious people on this planet, and we need to love people the way that Jesus loves them. We need to recognize that whoever we're talking to, that Jesus loved them so much, he'd rather die than live without them, and he proved it on the cross of Calvary. Amen? And we need to be loving and kind and gracious people, again, because the Lord is not going to, there's no people in a category that they cannot be forgiven. That only takes place when they die, and until, as long as they're breathing in and out, there's still an opportunity for them to be saved. Point number nine, we don't fight for victory, but from victory. What that means is the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle's already been won. I've read the end of the Bible. God wins. We win. Amen. And then finally, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And it is so good to know. So let's begin there in verse one of 2 Chronicles chapter six, looking at a life dedicated to the Lord. So the temple's been built, everything's in place, they're finally going to be able to start worshiping the Lord there, making the sacrifices to God, the blood of bulls and goats will be shed, they'll be fulfilling all the things that are, again, written in the word as far as sacrifices, and then it says, then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. The word dark cloud there in the original language, Arafel means a cloud, a heavier dark cloud of darkness, thick darkness. It says in Exodus, and the people stood afar off as, as Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. That was on Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy, it says, these words the Lord spoke unto all the assembly of the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud, the thick darkness with a great voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and delivered them unto me. See, God's presence was pictured as a cloud. And if you'll remember when they were wandering in the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And when they would wake up in the morning, and if you remember, if you were here with us, when we were going through uh, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you'll remember they were marching through the wilderness in the shape of a cross. And so the way that they, each of the tribes was linked, it was in the size of a cross. And in the middle was the tabernacle. And over the top of the tabernacle, at the top of the ark, was this cloud. And it was God's presence. And when they would wake up in the morning, they would go outside their tent and they would look to see if the cloud moved. And if the cloud moved, they packed up everything in the camp and they moved the cloud, they moved the camp until they got right back under the cloud again. And so what a picture for us that we should be looking up wherever God guides, that's where we go. Amen? We follow God's leading. We want to stand in the center of God's will. And so throughout Scripture, we see God is being pictured in a cloud or often also in a pillar of fire, the tongues of fire in the book of Acts, right? And so it says in Leviticus, and the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come out at all times of the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he did not die, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So the cloud of God represented the presence of God. And so here's the presence of God. And it said, the Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud, and the cloud of God's glory has a long association with his presence throughout Scripture. Then it says in verse 2, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So now God's presence would be in the center of Jerusalem, 
in the temple, and it would no longer be moving from place to place, but it would be there forever, as long as the temple was there. And so it was a place where the people knew if they wanted to go be in the presence of God, they could go to the temple and the, his presence would be hovering over. Now we'll see in the, later on in the text that God is never limited to one place. So it's not just the presence of God was only over the temple because we know God is omnipresent. Amen? He's all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God. He can be everywhere at once. But this certainly the symbol of his presence, this place of his presence, where the people knew, I can go to the temple and the presence of God is there. Now, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but they could be in the inner court or the outer court, depending on whether or not they were a Jew or a Gentile. But they could come near to where God was, and they could see the, the manifestation of the presence of God hovering above the, above the temple, in the, and they could be in the presence of God. And so this was someplace where, again, it's such a picture for us that we're as close to God as we want to be because God doesn't move, we do. If you're not close to God, you moved away from Him. If you want to be close to God... You can be close to God. Amen? If you want to have deeper faith, you can have deeper faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by. So if you want to have more faith, spend more time in God's word. You've heard me talk about John Corson, one of my favorite Bible teachers. And he used to, people used to say to him, I wish I had faith like you, Pastor John. And he'd say, you can. Read the Bible as much as I do. Amen? And, and so the same is true for all of us. So here this, this cloudless pillar was there, and here's where the presence of God was. And he said, look, this, this is where it is. And so what he's really encouraging them is that I, you know, God has built this exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. And Solomon rightly sensed that the presence of the cloud meant that God dwelt in the temple in a special way. As long as they did not slip into superstitious misunderstanding, it was good to recognize a special place to come and meet with God. And what a man has always needed is what God created us for, and that's intimate fellowship with him. You were created to have fellowship with God. That's why you were created. That's why you exist. That's why you, we live and move and breathe is to know him and to make him known. Amen? When this time is coming past, only what we've done for Christ will last. On judgment day when we stand before Almighty God, again, we will be judged uh, based on how faithful we've been, if we're believers, with the gifts that God has given us. He won't care about our 401k or how much money we made or how well we, you know, how much we could bench press or what great athletes we were or, or what good homemakers... Again, do, your, do everything as unto the Lord, but what have we done with God's Son is what will matter. And that's what God has always wanted, is intimate fellowship with us. Guys, if something's missing, it's nothing the world has to offer. There's nothing the world can do that can give you the peace that can only come from the Lord. There's no other place. So this cloud was this place of clear presence and a place where people could draw near to him and a clear sign that God was committed to living amongst his people and that God is steadfast. And it is man that either draws near to him or further away from him. In the old covenant, God's presence dwelt in a place. And again, it moved with the cloud. In the new covenant, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, we're the most blessed of all people. We're also the most accountable because we don't have to go down to the temple to find the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not God, but His Holy Spirit dwells within us. And He's always with us. And He comforts us and He convicts us. And I'm so thankful for both. Praise God for that. So point number one, remaining in God's presence. 
Uh, a life dedicated to the Lord, less, you know, uh, walking in intimate fellowship, remaining in God's presence. See, God, they knew where God's presence was now. He was going to be there. They didn't have to look up to see if the cloud was going to move because it wasn't going to. In a permanent residence in the heart of Jerusalem, in, in the place where his people, Israel, were dwelling. Point number two, giving God all the glory. Now watch, the temple's been built. God's presence is there. The furnishings are all done. It's been a mighty task. It's taken many years. And it would be very easy for Solomon to take a victory lap or to pat himself on the back or to speak about how amazing everybody was. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 3. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has filled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. I have chosen David to be over my people Israel." Prior to them coming to Jerusalem and coming into the land, there was no special place that was a permanent residence, and there was no king that God would raise up. Because prior to them making Saul king, who was their king? Almighty God was their king. And when they cried out for a king, God told them, well, I'll, give you, I'll let you have a king, but if you, if you get a king, he's going to cause harm and destruction. He's going to cause your, you to turn your backs on me. He's going to enslave your children. He's going to do, and, and they said, we don't care. We want a king anyway. They got King Saul because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. And notice he says when he finally made a king, he didn't make Solomon king. He mentions David. He said, I didn't want there to be a king, but I gave you David in the end. And I've given you a place in the place is Jerusalem. See, all the people of Israel had gathered together for the dedication of the temple. And we're going to see in a moment that he's going to create a, a little stage for himself that he stands up on so the people far away can hear him. We have no idea what number this is, but it's at least hundreds of thousands, if not more. They've all gathered together for the dedication of the temple. This is as big as it gets. They're all gathered together there. I think of like when you see in Washington, D.C., when there's that one square where everybody lines up and there's people as far as your eyes can see. Kind of imagine it being something like that. And he stands up on top of this box and he begins to share with them and he begins to speak to them. And what does he do? Again, he talks to the whole assembly, but he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He doesn't say, hey guys, aren't I amazing? Look what I built hey, you guys who worked on this, you're awesome. He didn't do that. He gave all the praise and all the glory to the Lord. Notice he said, since I brought you back, since I brought you out of Egypt. You know, when God brought him out of Egypt, they took a long road to the land of promise. Because from Egypt, from, from Mount Sinai to the land of promise, it's an 11-day walk. And how long were they in the wilderness? 40 years. Why? Because God delivers them out of bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. God delivers them. They get backed up at the Red Sea. They're already moaning and complaining, right? And then what happens? Moses lifts off his staff. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through the Red Sea. Uh, 
you know, they were being chased. They thought they were going to die. And they saw the enemy, all of Pharaoh's people did the dead man float, right, in the Red Sea. And they're all dead in the Red Sea. They cross over to the other side. And then at Mount Sinai, they're given the law. And they don't want to hear God's voice. So they tell Moses to go up by himself. Moses goes up by himself. He comes down 40 days later. And they're having an orgy around a golden calf. And then Moses breaks all Ten Commandments. First person to break all Ten Commandments, right? He just, he broke them. He was so frustrated. He went back up on the mountain, came back down, and now they head to the, you know, they cross the, you know, and they're wanting to complain and all the way. And they get there, and ten, 12 spies go in, and they listen to 10 people who say, we're going to get crushed if we go in there. 10 white, windy whiners go in there, come out, whine and moan and complain, and 10 ungodly men kept, kept 2 million people from entering into the land of promise. Because we don't listen to men, we listen to God. Two guys came out and said, God said so. Joshua and Caleb, let's go. And we know that they all died in the wilderness. Moses didn't get to enter in because he smoked the rock. They finally enter into the land. God gives them victory. And still, what do they do? Before long, they're worshiping idols. Before long, they're, they're being married to the people in the land. See, they couldn't just do what God said. And if they had just obeyed the Lord, this would have been... And he's saying, look, going all the way back to Egypt, this was always my plan. Going all the way back to Egypt, this was the plan I had for you. And now I've brought you into the land. And now, yeah, I was never, never meant for there to be a king. I was your king. I never meant for you to be in a specific place. But guess what? I've chosen Jerusalem, and I've chosen David as the king. I had a plan for you. Even in the midst of all the sin that had come through you. It says in 1 Chronicles 29, 16, O Lord our God, all the abundance that we have prepared to build your house for you, your holy name is from your hand. It's all on your own. See, they gave the glory to the Lord. No matter what, all that God had done, he got the glory for it. Even the, the work that they did, he brought them out of the land of Egypt. It says there in Deuteronomy 12, when you go over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God gave you to inherit, he will give you the rest from all your enemies round about so that you will dwell in safety. Then there will be a place the Lord God shall choose to cause his name to dwell and there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offering in your hand, all the choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. See, this is the law of the central sanctuary. One place would be the single place of worship, and God was going to rise up a king. He raised up a king by the name of King David. Then he promised through the line of David that all the nations of the world would be blessed, that, the, that through his line that there would be kings until the Messiah would come. And it's been 500 years since they were delivered out of bond. And it took 500 years to get to a place where they could have been in just a few years. Why? Because they kept getting distracted along the way. And don't you feel the same way about your own walk sometime? Can I get an amen to that? That why is it taking me so, why, why, you know, I could have been this close to the Lord a long time ago, but I got distracted for a bunch of years and didn't really spend much time in the word. I had some time where I was chasing my career and I wasn't spending much time with the Lord. I got so caught up with family stuff. And again, be a good dad, be a good mom, be good grandparents, be a great husband, do all those things. But doing those things shouldn't keep us away from doing the God thing because when we're honoring the Lord, we'll be a better husband, a better father, a better mother, a better wife, a better grandpa. Amen. So we could do all of that at the same time, but it took so long for them to get where God had always planned for them to be. And sometimes that's the same for us. 
So easy to get distracted. Took 500 years since Egypt. Yet I've chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. I've chosen David to be over my people. The people refused to enter the land again out of fear. They complained in the desert. They worshiped false gods. They chose Saul as king and many choices apart from the choice that God had for them. And each of those choices ended in disaster. Solomon gives credit to his dad, King David. He points back to the fact that God raised up King David. And King David was a man for God's own heart, even though we, King da- we know that King David too was very flawed. It says in verse 7, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it is in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it is in your heart. It was in David's heart to do something for the Lord, and he recognized that something was wrong. And again, as I said earlier, he, he's no doubt standing out on the top of his palace, and he's looking down on this tent, which is the place of meeting for the Lord, and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant's not even there. And he's like, how can I live in a palace, and God's in a tent? I need to do something else. I need to fix that. And so his heart was in the right place, but God was not going to allow him to do it. And I, I say this often, a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. You know, if you don't know what you're called to do, look and see the areas that maybe in your local church or a ministry you have a heart for and you see a need and that need just won't go away. When I became a youth pastor, God gave me a heart for teenagers and I would lose sleep at night thinking about how can I minister to teenagers. I would see teenagers standing in front of a movie theater. I'd get out of my car and go over there and talk to them about the Lord. And I just had this burden. So for 15 years, I ministered to, to mainly high schoolers. And that was a burden. I had, and that burden's never really gone away in a lot of ways. But see, David's heart was stirred up to, to give God a proper place, a place for God to be worshiped. And he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted, but he didn't just give up. What did he do instead? He said, look, I'm going to do everything I'm allowed to do to bring this about. And maybe, you know, there's a, there's a gifting you would like to have, but you don't have, at least not yet. Don't just wait and sit back until that happens. Say, look, how can I help? How can I serve in that area? How can I grow in my relationship with the Lord? So he prepared Solomon and gathered all the materials he needed to be be faithful where God places you. Don't be envious of someone else's gifting. You just use the gifts God's given you. Without, for all ears, where's the you know sight? Where for all eyes, where's the hearing? Right? We all have different gifts, and they're all needed for the kingdom of God. It says in verse nine there. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So though Solomon built the temple and not David, we are reminded of the preparations David made, and he prepared for the temple for literally dozens of years, preparing and doing everything he could. And again, his disqualification was not due to his sin. He was being faithful. God would not use a man of war. So David was flawed like most of us, like all of us, excuse me. But he was also a man for God's own heart. Look at verse 10 and 11. And it says there, So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have fulfilled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord had promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I've put the ark in which the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. So the Lord has fulfilled the word which he spoke. So again, even though God used him, he was pointing back to God's promises. 
See, God had already promised my, my dad. God had already promised that he was going to do this. And now it's been fulfilled. And you know what? God chose to use me to make it happen. But he's making sure that God is the one who is getting the glory. He said, there I put the ark, which is the covenant of the Lord. See, the chief glory of the temple was that it was the resting place of the ark of the covenant, a representation of God's uh, covenantal presence of his people. So it was God's temple with God's presence with his people, a miracle of God that only by the grace of God could come together. And we see here that he is giving God all the glory. Solomon is mentioning how God used him, but he's making sure he takes none of the credit. And, and at this point, Solomon is a very godly man. See, Solomon, we know, asked for, when given the opportunity to ask for a gift, he asked for wisdom. And he was wise in every area, but one area of his life. What was that? Women. He was, a, he was, he was she, he man who was she weak, amen? And man, did he, man, a thousand women. Gotta be kidding me. But here's the problem, and that turned into idolatry and all kinds of other problems. But he had wisdom in writing the book of Proverbs, and he had wisdom early on in his reign with the Lord. And you know, my prayer for all of us is that we wouldn't be those people that flame out in our walk. And what I mean by that, you'll see people that are on fire for God for a length of time, and then you'll see them after a while, and they're not as on fire for the Lord as they used to be, and then you wonder if they're even saved, and it's kind of tragic, right? Because here's the reality. Somebody who truly knows Jesus is not going to walk away from him, amen? The whole deconstructing Christianity, why don't you just come out and say what you really mean? You were never saved. Can I get amen to that? Because we don't deconstruct and we don't walk away. If we know the Lord, we're going to stay. He'll never, you know, he's snatching us out of his hand, amen? So here he is, but we see Solomon, right? He's starting well, but he's not going to finish too well. But at this point, he gets it. Now we're going to see him pray, and he's going to come, humbly come before the Lord in prayer. And look, here's the reality. If we are to walk in intimate fellowship with God, it's going to be reflected in our prayer life. If we're not praying much, we're going to struggle. When I do counseling, often the first things I'll ask people is, tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your devotional time. Tell me about your time in the, you know, time in the Word. How, where are you serving? And most people are really struggling. Well, my prayer life, not so much. I don't really read my Bible all that often. I'm not serving anywhere. And I get to church when it's convenient. And if I was uh, Pastor uh, Chuck, Pastor Romain, you knew I was going to, thanks, bro. Pastor Romain, who was Chuck's assistant, what he would say is if, if he came and asked, they'd say, go home and do those things and then come back and talk to me in a month. Go home and read your Bible, go home and pray, start being in fellowship and get involved in ministry, and then come back and talk to me, because until you do that, the rest is a waste of time, amen? But when you have intimate fellowship with God, it's going to change everything. And here, look at his prayer life as he has this prayer of dedication to the temple. It says in verse 12, then, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had sat in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven. So this is that thing I talked about earlier. So he's standing, and he wants the crowd to be able to see him. So remember, cubits 
It's about a foot and a half because it's actually the measurement from the, your elbow to the top of your middle finger. So about a foot and a half. And so if, if something is, is uh, you know, five cubits, that's seven and a half feet, right? And so he said, this is the size of, so it's like seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half feet high. He's standing up four and a half feet so he can speak to them. But notice what he does as the king. He is in front of all of them and he gets down on his knees like this. And he just starts raising his hands to pray. Do you think that had an impact on everybody that was watching? They saw that this man was, even though he was king, he was willing to humble himself. He was the king. He was the man that could, could say that person dies and they die. He was in charge. There was nobody above him and ruling over him from the world's perspective. And yet, in spite of all that, he was not afraid to humble himself. The Bible says to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will, and he will lift you up. And so here's the king, and he gets in front of all the people, as far as the eyes can see, and he gets down on his knees, and he raises up his hands to worship the Lord. Boy, right now, Solomon is right on the mark. Solomon did not dedicate the temple within the temple. It would be inappropriate because he was not a priest. He's out in the courtyard, and, he, and he's there where all the people can see him, and he kneels, he humbles himself before God. He spreads out his hand, which was a common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. And again, many modern people today, we bow our heads and close our eyes. But in those days, this was the way that they prayed. They would look up to heaven, they would hold their hands out before Almighty God. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we can pray anyway in any posture we want today. But again, as we, most of us bow our heads, I do think that, uh, I know for me, and again, I said it before, kneeling by my bed is a place that I love to pray. And when I'm really in a place of desperation, when I was crying out for my boys or whatever I might be going through, I, I'm on my face. And it's just because I just want to be, you know, I, I don't want to be distracted. I don't want anything. Now I do, do I pray in my car? Yeah, but it, it's not typically as focused, Right got to keep an eye on traffic. Amen. So praying anywhere is good, but, but there's a place where you go and you know, that prayer closet, right? Where there's no distraction that nothing else is occupying our thoughts or our mind or our senses. And, and here we have him in front of this crowd of people getting on his knees. And then as he's on his knees, he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept your promise, uh, your promise, promise your servant David, my father. You have spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. It is this day. He's crying out to him saying, Lord, you did all that you said you would do. There's no other God besides you. Lord, it's you. You did this. The temple's behind him. It's this majestic building. It was uh, a, a, just an eighth wonder of the world, if you will. It was a, ma a magnificent thing. And when they're looking at it, he's, he's making sure that God gets all the glory. And everybody looking on, he's making sure that it's all about him. And he's crying out. He's saying, look, you, you made the promise to David. You're the one who said you would do this. There's no God like you. There's no one as faithful as you. You're all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God. By the way, it's always good to start off your prayer with the greatness of God. Amen? The model prayer. People call it the Lord's Prayer. How does it start off? 
Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. See, if we start off with the greatness of who our God is, it makes everything we're praying for afterward uh, much less significant in, the, in light of how great our God is. I don't have time to go through it, but I put these six P's together for the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, we start with praise, then providence, right? The fact that your, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Provision, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, and then forgive us as we forgive others, perfection. And then lead us not into temptation, protection, right? So praise, pr- providence, provision, perfection, protection with persistence. There's your prayer life, Amen. But begin with praise, and he begins with praise. He's on his knees, and he's praising God at the top of his lungs as this crowd looks on, and he's humbling himself before God, and he's giving God all the glory, and praise God for quite a, what an amazing example we see in young King Solomon, Lord God of Israel. And then he says, you have kept your promise to this day, therefore, Lord God of Israel, verse 16 Now keep what you have promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way and walk in my law as you have walked before me. God had promised that David's ancestors would be on the throne as long as they obeyed God. But as soon as they disobeyed God, that line would be broken. Who does that line get broken with pretty soon? Solomon. Now, Solomon, because of his idolatry, if you were here when we're going through second, first and second kings, because of his idolatry, his, his ancestors are only going to get Judah. And the rest of the land is going to be given away because he walks away from the Lord. But he remembered God's promises and he prayed God's promises. And by the way, one of the great things we should be doing when we pray is praying God's promises. See, I can tell you prayers that I know God will answer when we ask God to do what he's already promised to do. Amen? When we read the word and it says he promises to do this, we pray it and guess what? He will do it. Too often what we do is we pray what we want instead of what God's word says. And we'll pray contrary to God's word, and that's a problem, a prayer I can tell you right now. He'll say no every time. Amen? Pastor, can you pray this for me? What do you want me to pray? No, I'm not praying for that. Well, what do you mean you won't pray for that? No, that's contrary to the word of God. Let me give you the answer. No. He already said no. Bible says no. But notice how he's praying according to what, Lord, What you said you would do, you did it. What you told my father you would do, you did it. You you answered your word. You were faithful to your promises. You are a faithful God. And he said, but you also promised that my line would remain on the throne. And he did promise that. But it's going to come to an end, not because of what God did, but because of what Solomon does. Then he says in verse 18, but will God indeed dwell with men on earth? What's the answer to that? Will God dwell with men on earth? What's the answer? What's his name? There you go. Amen. Now, what he's saying is, will God's presence dwell with men on the earth? He's talking about the immediate, but certainly God's presence was in the temple, but now Jesus came and he is God who dwelt on the earth. Amen. So he asks a question that will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ, but at the moment he's speaking about just God's presence again in the temple, but again, it's all, that all points to Jesus. Behold, heaven 
and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. See, praise God that Solomon understood that even though he knew that the presence of God was over the tabernacle, he also knew he wasn't limited to that. Because what he's saying is, will God be held dwelling on the earth? Is that the only place he will be? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yes, your presence is here, but your presence is everywhere. But we can trust that when we come here, that we can meet you here. Verse 19, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward the temple at night, day and night, toward the people where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. He's saying, Lord, we know that You're not contained only here, but my prayer is, Lord, that you will always have your eyes upon those who pray toward this place. Now, do you know that when they were away from Jerusalem, they would pray towards Jerusalem? They would pray toward where the temple was. It's why when you go to Israel today, they still have people going to the Wailing Wall, because that was the place Uh, that was closest to where the old Holy of Holies once was. So they try to get as close to the Holy of Holies as they can. Daniel, when he was in captivity and Jerusalem had been leveled, we notice that in the text, he still would pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And he was so much known for that, that that's how the other, you know, uh, wise men, right, of of the court there got him in trouble because he was known every day to open his windows and pray toward Jerusalem. And they got him, they went, you know, said, you have to pray only to Darius. And then they set out there waiting for him to flip his window open. And sure enough, he did. They threw him in the lion's den. But the point is that this picture here was something that the children of Israel followed, that they would pray toward Jerusalem. Well, we don't do that anymore. You know why? Because God's presence isn't just in Jerusalem. God's presence dwells inside of us. Amen? And we don't have to look there anymore. That's the old covenant. And praise God for the old covenant because God used it in his time. But we're not under the old covenant anymore. It's the same reason we're not bringing in sacrifices anymore. Amen? Because Jesus is the answer and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Then he says there in verse 21, and may... You hear the supplication of your servant and your people of Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. When people who are, have blown it and they pray toward this place, will you hear their prayer, Lord, and will you forgive them? Solomon knew the most important thing that Israel needed was forgiveness. And that's what we all need to remember. The most important thing that man needs today is forgiveness. Amen. Why did Jesus come? So that we could be what? So we could be forgiven. See, we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and without forgiveness, we're we're lost. And our greatest need is to be forgiven. And he knew that Israel's greatest need, and so he even says, look, when they look, when they they pray to Jerusalem and they cry out to your name, will you you forgive them? Will you hear their prayers and forgive them? Because Solomon knew that was the need that they had, and it was something that God promises he would do. So point number four there, God hears our prayers. God hears the prayers of those who seek him. We saw point number three, humbly coming 
before the Lord, and then God hears the prayers of those who seek him. Now, point number five there, God will judge between right and wrong. And he says, if anyone sins against his neighbor, this is him continuing to pray, his prayer of dedication, if anyone sins against his neighbor and forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in the temple, then hear from heaven, act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way to his own head and justifying the righteous by giving them giving him according to his righteousness. Here's his prayer. Lord, when they come asking for forgiveness, will you forgive them? And when they come in a dispute and one of them's right and one of them's wrong, can you show us which one's right and which one's wrong? Lord, can you bring righteous judgment on the one who's wrong? And can you bring uh, you know, restoration for the one who's right? Lord, can you show us the ones who are right and the ones who are wrong? Boy, wouldn't you love it if we just did that in this country from now on? Amen? We have a supreme court. We have a heavenly court. Amen? Can you imagine if we just took everything before the Lord? Lord, you tell us what's right, we'll do that. Whatever's wrong, Lord, I'm out. We're out. Hey, deal with the guys who are wrong. Can you imagine? Amen? Guess what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day. Amen? And they, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Amen? And the right and the wrong. But at the time, he's, here's, isn't this a wise king? He's saying, look, forgive those who seek forgiveness. And Lord, when they've taken those and there's a disagreement, Lord, can you show us who's right from wrong? Because Lord, we need your help. You're the only one that can show. We need your help. God, can you do that, please? Can you judge between right and wrong? Guys, I want to encourage you. If you don't know what's right or what's wrong, spend time in the Word and get on your knees and don't do anything until God shows you. Amen? God will show us right from wrong. He's not hiding the truth from us. Point number six, God will forgive a humble and confessing heart. Look at verse 24. Or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they sinned against you and return to confess your name and prayer make supplication before you in his temple... Then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, and then bring them back to the land which you gave them and their fathers. He's already praying ahead for when they blow it. Hey, Lord, when they blow it because of their sin, and then they repent, will you forgive them? You know what? The only way that Israel would be defeated is because of their sin. See, it was God had promised them, God had blessed them, God had his hand upon them. And the only reason that they got in trouble was because they chose to reject him, because they got caught up in idolatry, because they walked away from the Lord. And Solomon in his wisdom saw it coming. Lord, there's going to be a day coming. They're going to blow it. We're going to blow it. And when we do, if we come asking for forgiveness, will you forgive us? What a great prayer, Amen. And you know what? Here's the good news. Again, you could take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But he's already crying out with wisdom, knowing that there'll be a time when his people fall away from the Lord and when they cry out to God. And here's the good news. God will forgive a humble and a confessing heart. If you're defeated by the enemy, many times in history, Israel was defeated and could only cry out to God. And it was even worse when the defeat was because they had sinned against the Lord himself, which was most of the time. And when they had sinned against God and then they got in a bad place and then they cried out to the Lord, he was faithful and just to forgive them. And the same is true for us. And I'm so glad. How about you? Number seven, since consequences drive us to repentance. Look at verse 26. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, 
When they prayed toward the place and confessed your name and turned from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Drought was a constant threat for the agriculturally based economy of Israel. If there was no rain, they were wiped out. If there was no rain, there was no food. And often God's judgment would come upon a rebellious people by withholding rain or bringing about uh, you know, tragedies, right? In a way, right? And you know, it's interesting to me, we have all these hurricanes, we have all this stuff that's going on, and people are blaming it all on, on climate change. By the way, let me just clear it up. If, you have, if you're under climate change, okay. But here's the reality. Climate change is nothing more than pagan idolatry because the Bible says in the last days, men will worship creation instead of the creator. And we don't need to be looking at creation because the world's not going to end because of climate change. The world's going to come to an end because of sinfulness and a, a, a total disregard for God and open rebellion against God. And God is going to bring righteous judgment upon the earth because of that. Amen. And we don't need to worry about climate change. What a bunch of nonsense. They're worried about it's going to change one-tenth of one degree in 50 years if we don't do this. Well, guess what? There's some global warming coming. It's, more, it's not global. It's eternal warming. And it's called hell if you don't get right with God. Can I get him into that? But all these hurricanes and stuff, they're like, this is all because of climate. Maybe it's God's righteous judgment because we've gotten so far away from him. Amen. People, I've had pastors say, well, God doesn't bring judgment. Are, what, what, have you read the Bible? Amen? Do you think had things, well, God had nothing to do with that. God has everything to do with everything. Amen? If God let go of the universe for one nanosecond, what would happen? It would all crash. Amen? So that being said, look, maybe there needs to be drought in California so people will repent. Amen? Maybe we need to come to a place where we will cry out to Almighty God once again. And, they, and we want to blame it on everything else, but instead of getting on our face before the Lord, and he's just saying, look, when the plagues come, Lord, and you bring them to the end of themselves, when there's consequences for their behavior, because you bring the drought, and they cry out to you, Lord, will you let it rain again? After they cry out to you, this is what Solomon is praying. Do you know that they think COVID was a mess? What do you think is going to happen when the church is raptured? And all the Christians leave. And the influence of the Holy Spirit, for the most part, outside of 144,000 and things that happened during the tribulation, but all of that is gone. People were panicking over a glorified flu bug, and now we're, can you imagine when when the church is gone? It's only because of the remnant that this country is as blessed as it is. Amen? You take the remnant out, Disaster. We had a lady campaigning in, in Newbury Park for the school board, and she said the first thing that needs to happen is we need to get the Christians out of politics. We need to get all the Christians out. If we just remove the Christians, we would see what a wonderful place it will be. I hope she's here to see exactly what happens. <laughs> it would be an opportunity for her to repent. Can I get an amen to that? All the Christians are gone. How's that working out? Amen? But he's saying, look, in times of drought and plague, when, you know, when, when things come upon us because we have rebelled against you, Lord, could you please, Lord, can you please bring rain again when they repent? Could you do that, Lord? 
And he's saying there in verse 28, when there's famine and pestilence and blight and mildew and locusts and grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, wherever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever, wherever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, by all the people of Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. When this tragedy comes and they cry out to you, Lord, will you answer those who are sincere when they cry out? And will you bring righteous judgment upon those because you know the hearts of men who continue to reject you? Lord, will you bless those who, who cry out to you? And will you bring judgment upon those who reject you? This is a prayer of David, prayer of Solomon, excuse me. What an amazing prayer this is, amen? Lord, when we cry out to him, Lord, help. Lord, forgive. Lord, heal our land. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. Because the, the, the people who aren't called by his name, their prayer won't go anywhere. Amen? It says in verse 31, they may fear, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Saying, look, when when the tragedy comes and then we cry out to the Lord and we see God bring restoration, then we, we have a fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we recognize that only God can rescue us from a situation, then we realize that we need to keep our hope and our trust and our faith only in Him. Sin's consequences drive us to a place of repentance and crying out to the Lord. Look at point number eight. No one... Who truly seeks the Lord, will he turn away? Look at verse 32. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, who has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls you and all the peoples of the earth may know that your, name, that your name and fear you. We know your name and fear you as you do your people, Israel, that you may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. He's saying, look, when people come who aren't Jews, when Gentiles come in the outer court and they cry out to your name, Lord, will you hear the prayers not only of my people, not only of my descendants, but of the whole world, anybody who cries out to your name, Lord, will you hear their prayer? What a wonderful prayer that's being prayed, amen? He says, look, no one who truly seeks the Lord will be turned away if we're truly seeking the Lord. Again, I love to hear this. I hear this almost weekly. Well, I'd come to your church, but, but you know, I'm a, I'm a Jew. Oh, I teach a Jewish book written by Jewish people about a Jewish Savior, so come on down. Can I get him into that? But do you know the only time that we see God, well, one of the few times we see God getting angry is when they turned that outer court into a den of thieves. That was the place where the Gentiles gathered. See, God was always a God of the Jews, but he was also a God of the Gentiles. And he desired that all men would come unto himself. And his anger was aroused when they had turned the outer court, the place where the Gentiles came to worship, into a den of thieves to the point where he made a whip of cords and drove them out of there. So God is angered when, you know, there's an exclusivity of who can approach him. That grieves the heart of God, amen? And it grieved his heart even in those days. 
So a foreigner could come unto him. And it says in Isaiah 56, 7, the temple was in Israel, but it was always intended to be a house of prayer for all nations and all people, not just some. Again, the foreigners, again, could also come to the Lord. Last two points. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Look at verse 34. And he says there, when your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, when they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and, their, and, and maintain their cause. Notice he keeps saying when they pray to their temple, hear from heaven. Because he knows that even though God's presence dwelt above the temple, his real presence, ultimate presence was in heaven. So he says, when they pray to the temple, hear from heaven. And it says, hear their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and take them captive into the land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in their land of their captivity, saying, we've sinned, we've done wrong, and we've committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of captivity, where they've been carried away captive and prayed toward the land which you gave their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built in your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, who do you think this would be really encouraging for? The people reading this letter who are coming back from Babylon into Jerusalem. Amen? Because this is exactly what happened to them. It was their ancestors who had, re who had rebelled against God and the worship of false gods, and God allowed them to be dragged off into Babylonian captivity, and they had been there for 70 years, and it, obviously they came to a place where they cried out to God, and God restored them back into their land. We saw it in Judges seven times over a 400-year period of time where they repeatedly would be walking with the Lord, and then they would sin against God when their, their judge died and passed away. And then they would come into a place where they got taken into captivity and would cry out to God. He would bring a deliverer, a judge who would come along, restore them back to fellowship. The judge would die. They'd rebel against God, and they kept doing it over and over and over. And sometimes that sounds like our lives sometimes, amen? We're walking with the Lord. We get off track. We start getting caught up in the things of the world. We succumb to some temptation. It's some, it, it consumes us for a while. But then when we cry out to God, he restores us back into fellowship. We walk with the Lord for a period of time. And maybe you could fall back into that trap. And he's praying. He's crying out saying, look, Lord, when they do this, will you forgive them? Lord, we already know that you're going to win the battle. Lord, we know that even though there's going to be time we're taken captive by the enemy, that the enemy is a defeated foe. Because when this is all done, the enemy is going to be burning in hell for all eternity, separated from Almighty God, and we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God forever. Amen? So Satan may win battles, but he's lost the victory. He won't have victory. He's lost the war because the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? And praise God that we will have victory in Jesus. Notice he does say that we've all sinned against you. And that's true of all of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Forgive thy, forgive thy people. God wants to forgive. God is going to honor Solomon's prayer because God delights in forgiveness. Last point, he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
It says there in verse 40 again, Nor, Now, my God, I pray, let you, your eyes be open. Let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. Let you and the ark of your strength. Let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away your face from your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he's saying here, look, now, in the midst of all of this, this is your resting place, the conclusion of this prayer. He has numbers in mind where Israel moved the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the whole camp had to follow it. And now it's come to a final, it's a resting place. It's a, it's a constant place where they could go to come to worship the Lord, a place where they could make sacrifice to the Lord. It's a constant place. For you and I, there's a constant place and, and the constant place will never leave us nor forsake us because he dwells inside of us. Amen. And he's a gracious God and a loving God and a merciful God. So in closing, a life dedicated to the Lord, walking in intimate fellowship with Almighty God, lessons we can learn. Number one, remaining in God's presence. May we walk in intimate fellowship with him, always giving God the glory, never pointing to ourselves, humbly coming before the Lord in prayer. God, hears the prayers of those that seek him. God will judge between right and wrong. God will forgive a humble and a confessing heart. Since consequences drive us to repentance, no one who truly seeks the Lord will be turned away. We don't fight for victory, but from victory, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. What a great and awesome God we serve. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples we see in Solomon's prayer tonight. And Lord, I do pray for each and every one of us, especially as we come here into a new year, that we would not be satisfied with where we are spiritually Lord, we would desire to grow in our relationship with you, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. Lord, to be glorified in our lives, to be used for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... You see.